Welcome to the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. Solidarity Winnipeg is working to lay the basis for an eco-socialist political organization. By that, we mean we are a small group of like-minded people who work in a coordinated way in community groups, in unions, and on campuses to build grassroots power, to educate people, to be effective eco-socialist organizers, and to build support for the long-term goal of breaking with capitalism and starting a transition to eco-socialism. Because Winnipeg is located on Treaty 1 territory, we acknowledge that Treaty 1 is the homeland of Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, Dene peoples, and the Métis Nation. The Canadian state has carried out genocide, ethnic cleansing, and forced removal of Indigenous people in order to clear the land for settlement by Europeans. The colonization and oppression of Indigenous peoples is not a thing of the past. It continues today. But around the world, Indigenous peoples are leaders in the fight against capitalism and environmental destruction. We have a lot to learn from Indigenous cultures and teachings that will help us heal our relationship with the land and with each other. So welcome to the September 2021 episode of the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast about the federal election. I'm David. I'm a member of Solidarity Winnipeg, and there are two other people recording this episode today. I'm Danielle, also a member of Solidarity Winnipeg. I'm Robin. Uh, I'm an activist and organizer, and I have a day job in the labor movement. Okay, so we're going to start before we actually talk about the election itself by talking about capitalist democracy, because the election is an exercise in capitalist democracy. And uh, then we'll go from there to talk about the parties and where, how they're positioning themselves right now. So when we talk about capitalist democracy, we talk about a capitalist society with institutions to which people elect representatives, uh, but this is an extremely minimal kind of democracy. It's often treated as if it is the only kind of democracy or democracy itself, but it's a very, very weak form of democracy. Really what we're doing is voting for which party is going to govern, and that means which party is going to administer capitalist society. It's not about the kind of society we want. It's just about which party is going to be at the top of state institutions. Of course, it's better to have that than you know, democracy at all. But uh, that's what we're talking about. And in a capitalist democracy, even the most democratic of capitalist democracies, there's no democracy whatsoever in very important spheres of society. We don't elect our employers. We don't elect the people that run the central bank. We don't elect the people that run the police and the military. We don't elect the other top civil servants and so on. There's absolutely no democracy in any of those institutions. And many of the things that affect us in everyday lives then are completely outside any even weak democratic control. Uh, and that's really important so we understand just how constrained and, and hollowed out and thin the democracy is that we have in this society. So also in exploring this question of what is capitalist democracy today, um, we'd also like to draw attention to how the state is not neutral, but a capitalist state. Um, and then further to that, acknowledging that within Canada, state power is settler colonial too. Uh, so essentially the state supports the ruling class, capitalism, and the accumulation of private property. And that's all based on a set of exploitative social relations. Uh, so therefore, um, as workers are making gains within this system uh, and efforts towards uh, reform, we can see how those capabilities um, may be limited. 
um, and that we're still working within a capitalist context um, that wants to support the advancement of the ruling class. But also, uh, as, as workers are focusing maybe on um, electing a more left-leaning government, um, we can also consider how this won't necessarily transform the nature of the system. Um, and we need to explore how we can build a uh, movement from below, um, exploring ways to organize that don't necessarily involve implementing socialism from above through the electoral system. So yeah, this could bring up questions as far as why voter turnout has been um, much lower than it was in the past when we think of uh, the period between the 1960s and 1980s and thinking about why there might be so little excitement about politics in our time. Um, but first, we need to consider the conditions in which the election is happening in Canada. Um, we have largely an atomized population with very little experience of collective action in terms of strikes as well as other broader social movements. And then as well, the parties that we uh, see today, they agree about a lot um, and the spectrum of what is acceptable politics um, is pretty narrowed. Um, and then as well acknowledging that global capitalism constrains government policy and choices. Yeah, I think also there are a couple of things we should think about as socialists when we think about elections. Um, and that is, there's a lot of focus in the media on how many seats parties win. And obviously that does matter in terms of what happens. But we should remember that the number of seats that parties win is not corresponding to the popular vote, right? We don't have any kind of proportional representation. Um, and so when people, when things get said about, you know, Canadians have chosen this party, given it a majority. Well, in fact, it might have a large minority, but certainly not more than that in terms of the, the number of votes that it got. Um, and also when people vote, you know, the, what we're seeing is just a snapshot of what they're thinking at a particular point in time as individuals, you know, as atoms, uh, you know, not working together with other people, going to a ballot box and selecting a, making a choice uh, based on a certain assessment that they, they have. Um, and that's not something that's locked in stone, right? Lots of people voted for the Conservatives, for example, in Manitoba in the provincial election, who are now not likely to vote for the Conservatives again because of what they've done in office through the pandemic. Uh, and we should also remember that people's ideas are really contradictory, right? So that someone might vote for the Liberal Party or the Conservatives even, um, but then when the government does something that they don't agree with, they might really be opposed to it. They might even be willing to protest against it. Um, and so we shouldn't just assume that the way people vote is the full, complete, you know, sum of their consciousness or anything like that. Um, that's a, an important thing to, to bear in mind when we think about elections. Most of us are, you know, contradictory about these kinds of things. Anything else to discuss in terms of capitalist democracy before we go on and talk about the political parties? Yeah, I just wanted to, to uh, add a point that I know I've, I've seen uh, David make before too about the distinction between forming government and taking power, um, which uh, there's there's a lot of slippage in people's language and, and they talk about being elected to government as taking power and wielding the state and this kind of thing. Um, but of course, um, forming government uh, does not necessarily mean that uh, the, the party in question, you know, has either ideological control of, you know, uh, all these apparatuses from, from banking to the police. Um, 
uh, let alone control of, of the corporate and market forces that come to bear on governments in various ways. Um, and, you know, there, you know, there's extreme examples of this in recent history. I think if we look at Greece and Syriza, an ostensibly anti-capitalist Marxist party taking power, and then, you know, essentially implementing, you know, the same or, or, or you know, uh, a slightly reduced form of, of austerity and, and neoliberalism, despite their, you know, um, their, 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 their name, the party of the radical left. Um, but so, you know, they formed government, but their, but their power was limited in the global economy and, and other things, which is an important point, I think. Okay, well, let's talk about parties. We're going to go through the major political parties and just say something about them. I'll start by saying something about the Liberal Party, which really is, you know, has been the leading party of, of government for the Canadian capitalist class throughout the whole history of the Canadian state. And uh, Martin Lukash, a couple of years ago, came out with a, a very good book called The Trudeau Formula, which has a lot to say about the, the Liberal Party. Um, he points out what we often forget now about how the federal liberals were key to implementing the neoliberal agenda in Canada beginning in the mid-1990s. And he points out that many of the economic and ecological problems we confront today, the perverse, perverse scale of inequality, a dire lack of affordable housing, the planet wrecking boom in the Alberta tar sands, a welfare state that is now among the stingiest in the industrialized world can be directly traced back to liberal policies of that era. So although they present themselves differently than the conservatives, they very much uh, are intent on implementing policies that are desired by and acceptable to the capitalist ruling class. So the Conservative Party, of course, uh, one of the yeah, two, you know, primary uh, ruling class hegemonic um, electoral parties in Canada, and you know, uh, under certain administrations, um, have been bolder uh, and more uh, aggressive in their uh, attack on workers' rights, on women's rights, um, you know, on 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 the working class generally, in all its diversity. Um, Currently, you know, the, the, leading into this election, the Conservative Party appeared to sort of be split and fractured. Um, but, you know, perhaps as we'll discuss more, they, they appear to have rebounded. The present leader, Peter O'Toole, is uh, making sort of uh, sort of overtures or, or trying to speak to certain, you know, economic questions in terms of trade uh, and, 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 and other issues and, and seeming to exercise a kind of uh, right wing populism, you know, in, in certain aspects, which we can discuss. I'll just say something briefly about the Bloc Québécois. Uh, so this is a party which you know, obviously doesn't get much attention outside of Quebec, but it's not, you know, contrary to what some people think, it's not a social democratic party like the NDP, uh, but really it was, it was formed by, originally by dissident Tories, among others. Uh, but it, it's a Quebec nationalist party of a very kind of mild and kind that accepts neoliberalism. Uh, and although they certainly sometimes call for various kinds of social reforms in order to attract votes within Quebec, they really are completely in line with the governments that have implemented and, and governed on a neoliberal basis inside Quebec. They just, you know, they're, they're trying to cut a different kind of a deal uh, with additional rights for Quebec within the constitutional order. Uh, and I'll speak about the New Democratic Party or NDP. Uh, would, 
What distinguishes the NDP from other parties uh, is its lack of ties to the capitalist class um, throughout its early histories. Uh, so within the context of the Cold War and the post-war economic boom, uh, the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, known as the CCF, uh, was transformed into the NDP. This was a period of social democratic reformism, um, and the party increasingly became more moderate. Um, of course, acknowledging that the NDP has never been anti-capitalist, um, but instead aims to reform the economy. Um, so initially, they were more focused on a Keynesian fiscal policy, um, expanding the welfare state and a mixed economy. Uh, and later, we've seen uh, the NDP come to accept neoliberalism. Um, what's also interesting about the NDP is their close relationship with the CLC. Um, however, it's worth acknowledging that um, this relationship has kind of been formed or forged between um, the leadership of the NDP at the top rather than um, coming through a process of mobilization. And then more recently, uh, we've seen how the NDP kind of has this focus uh, split between um, surpassing but also allying with uh, liberal-minded um, voters. And then there's uh, the Green Party, uh, which, um, you know, I think historically has has uh, its origins as people who are concerned about the environment and may have some, you know, sort of social progressive attitudes, but it's uh, unlike the NDP, uh, completely uh, disarticulated from the labor movement, certainly. Um, and, you know, uh, people uh, talk about you know, disparagingly, some people on the left, the Green Party is sort of being Tories on bicycles or Tories who recycle, uh, because historically, the Green Party has, is not um, really demonstrated much credibility on, on economic questions from a labor or left wing perspective. Um, there's been an openness to neoliberal uh, policy and, 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 and governance. Um, and uh, so, you know, there, there, there tends to be a fairly strong, um, I think, antagonism between NDP partisans and Green partisans with the NDP, you know, feeling like the Green Party is, is siphoning progressive supports, despite the fact that, you know, they're, they're, they don't have the, the uh, social democratic, you know, uh, credentials that the NDP uh, uh, takes for itself. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, more recently, the Greens have, have kind of been in a tailspin with some leadership issues. Uh, and there were a number of self, or, or at least a couple self-described eco-socialists who ran in the leadership race uh, as well, which is it's, it's probably worth noting. Yeah, um, of course, they were not the ones who won. Uh, maybe before we go on, um, it'd be worth just pausing to say a little bit about uh, the how these parties relate to the racism and settler colonialism within the Canadian state. Um, and so I'll just say a couple of things to start us off on that. Uh, one is that the, the liberals, you know, were really the, identified as the party of Canadian multiculturalism, which of course is not an anti-racism policy, right? Uh, that's not what multiculturalism policy has ever been about, even if it's attacked by, you know, by racists. Um, but the, the liberals were very successful in trying to position themselves and appeal to people who were not from a, an Anglo-Celtic, you know, background in uh, in Canada, and certainly to appeal to people emigrating um, to Canada from other parts of Europe after the Second World War, and from other parts of the world beyond Europe, too. And they, so they more successfully, I think, managed to uh, shed a kind of a, a white Canada image. 
um, and politics than the conservatives, but they're certainly not, uh, you know, it's not, a, not an anti-racist party in terms of a, in any kind of serious deep kind of anti-racism. And the conservatives uh, had difficulty in trying to grapple with some of that, I think. But interestingly, um, you know, they've, they've tried to tone down the racism and the having the split of Maxime Bernier and the People's Party taking out of the Conservative Party uh, some of the hard right elements has made that easier for Aaron O'Toole, I think. Uh, and they've also been doing a very you know, calculated effort to build support among conservative elements of communities of color. And uh, so I think that's just worth noting uh, when it comes to issues of, of, of racism and uh, Canadian identity. Any thoughts about the NDP in relation to, the, to that issue? Well, I mean, uh, you know, so one thing to to to, to certainly focus on um, is uh, provincially. That's where the NDP has formed government, and the historical record of the NDP. Well, even in its early formation in the CCF, you know, there there was some uh, kind of. Uh, paternalistic, you know, attempt at sort of uplift, uh, but it was thoroughly colonial. There was, you know, a kind of Christian register through a lot of, you know, the, the, the politics around Tommy Douglas. Um, and, uh, you know, historically, you know, the NDP in its provincial formations has, has arguably been as cutthroat in Indigenous dispossession of land, of children, of culture, of sovereignty. Um, so the historical record provincially for the NDP uh, on, on settler colonialism and Indigenous issues is, is, is not good. Yeah, and when it comes, when it comes to the, the Liberals and the Conservatives, of course, they will wrap themselves in, in reconciliation, right? As a, this is a, a trademark Liberal thing and the, uh, the conservatives you know tried to appropriate to to some extent uh, but of course as we've seen they are fundamentally committed to the settler colonial social order um, and really intent on trying to to mute any challenges to it yeah i think uh, another thing on this point is you know li the liberal party you know has you know sort of initially excelled and then arguably you know, depending on your perspective, crashed and burned or faltered through a politics of recognition, which is one of the things that uh, yeah, the, the Dene Indigenous scholar and, and writer uh, Glenn Coulthard writes about. Um, so so uh, putting a heavy emphasis on symbolism, on um, personalizing things through, you know, Trudeau's uh, willingness to, to shed tears, at, you know, in various circumstances, you know, all the while advancing, um, you know, the same settler colonial extractive uh, you know, projects and, you know, underfunding of First Nations education, of course, the drinking water. Um, so, you know, really good at some of the theater and performance, I think, early in, in, in Trudeau's tenure in particular. Um, but, you know, I think uh, any illusions that, that the people had about those, including, you know, a lot of the Indigenous people that I know, um, you know, have, you know, the veil has sort of been lifted uh, in that regard, it seems to me. All right, well, let's talk about what's happening at the moment. Robin, do you want to say something about the Liberals? 
Sure. The liberals are taking a lot of uh, flack for calling the election uh, so early. Um, I mean, it's. I think it's only, it's two years since since they were elected, right? Um, and uh, and as you know, COVID is 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 ongoing, and as parts of the country are are in a fourth wave, with a fourth wave still to come, you know, maybe in others. Uh, so, so that's sort of a context which, you know, if, if you read the sort of mainstream horse race punditry, uh, which I had a look at today, um, there, 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 there's quite a bit of, of talk of, of people being uh, sort of frustrated, annoyed, ticked off with the Liberals for, for calling the election when they did. Um, if we, uh, of course, going into the election, the reason why the Liberals triggered it in part is everything in terms of the polling looked great for them and the Conservatives seemed to be dis in disarray and maybe they kind of thought COVID would be at a, an appropriate lull. Um, uh, if we look to the platform, um, they, you know, the, the, the landing site on their website, um, you know, has six areas, COVID, housing, healthcare, the economy, um, the environment and reconciliation. And, um, if you look into, you know, those, those platforms, um, you, you'll see a lot, of, well, basically exclusively sort of market-based uh, solutions, whether that is, you know, government subsidization of, of certain uh, businesses or, 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 or uh, to some degree, house, private households, um, but, but there isn't sort of broad public uh, initiative in, in, in almost any of these categories. But I think the, um, the the circumstances with COVID and 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 where people are are at economically has led the Liberals to sort of you know try and try to do that thing where they outflank or, or compete with the NDP a little bit to their left. So you know they have a, they're talking about ten dollar a day childcare um, and uh, but you know if you really dig into you know there's virtually nothing in in fact as far as I can tell nothing in their climate policy that that directly uh, addresses reducing, uh, you know, and winding down fossil fuel, you know, uh, production. Um, so it's, 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 it's a very sort of status quo um, platform. It has all the sort of feel good vibes to it and all the, you know, uh, neoliberal uh, content underneath those, those touchy feely vibes. So. Yeah. And then we have the conservatives and there's stuff to talk about here because they have changed how they're positioning themselves. It's been going on for a year or so, at least. Uh, starting, certainly, you can remember there was a, a Labor Day message that Aaron O'Toole put out in 2020, which signaled this. And we've seen it um, rise in, in their platform uh, in the sense that they are not just simply preaching what you might expect in terms of traditional neoliberal uh, policies. And they have very much toned down certainly on the, the racist uh, things that they've been playing with in some of the previous campaigns that didn't, didn't do so well for, for Harper uh, back in 2015. And now they're, they're putting forward policies that include putting workers on the boards of federally regulated corporations. Um, there's Crown Corporations in the, operating in the, the federal jurisdiction, federally regulated industries. Um, more broadly, uh, making noises about helping gig workers, you know, workers in the gig economy, get, creating access to, to benefits for them, uh, criticizing multinational corporations. I mean, they're consistently, you know, very aggressive in their, their nationalist rhetoric, but this is now extending towards some criticism of, of multinationals, um, you know, along with things like having lower greenhouse gas emission 
uh, reduction targets uh, than Canada is officially committed to under, under the Liberals. So what's going on with this? Uh, some people have said this is a shift to the left or a return to the uh, old progressive conservative politics of the post-war economic boom era back between you know the middle of the 40s and the middle of the 70s or something like that. Uh, but I think that's a serious misunderstanding of what they're doing. I think, in fact, it's a turn to the right that's inspired in some ways by um, right-wingers like Trump in the U.S., um, Boris Johnson and the Tories in, in Britain and some other similar right-wing you know, forces, really hard right-wing forces. I'm not saying that, that Aaron O'Toole is, is actually like a Trump character, but I think they're, they're taking some inspiration. They're, they talk a lot about workers in their platform. They're making a targeted appeal to people that they know, you know, they know that lots of working class people have actually been having a really hard time of it in recent years. And so they've got this targeted appeal that uh, you know, on, on, offers these specifics um, and even talks positively about private sector unions uh, while at the same time advancing an agenda that's going to have a lot in it for, for corporations. Uh, Doug Nesbitt, writing for rankandfile.ca, has just written a piece uh, about the corporate tools bait and switch scheme to describe their, their platform. And I think he makes a lot of really good points in that. People should look it up. And including that uh, this is a divide and conquer strategy pitting public sector against private sector unions, right? So they can appeal to private sector workers and private sector unions as being productive for the economy, as opposed to the kind of parasitic overpaid public sector workers. And that's also really gendered. If you think about, you know, the public sector unions are their clear majority made up of, of women workers. Um, and so positioning themselves to appeal to, you know, people who are, you know, recognize that they're working people and that they're, not, not, they're not doing very well uh, with these kinds of shallow opportunistic um, demands and at the same time maintaining an agenda that would be you know, very, very friendly for employers in terms of all sorts of, of subsidies and, and so on. But this is a, a change for them. And I think we have to recognize what it is, that it's not a, any kind of shift to the left. They are certainly trying to you know, present O'Toole in a, in a milder kind of way uh, and they've got some analysis about gender and how he's perceived by, by women voters. But it's not just that. It's actually, I think, a more substantial change to a certain kind of a different right-wing politics appealing to, to workers on a different basis than the conservatives have been appealing before. And, and so, you know, as I was reading the, the, the sort of mainstream punditry, punditry today, um, you know, they're, they're all over the polling and, and uh, Aaron O'Toole, I think earlier in this conversation, I might have called him Peter O'Toole, apologies to the deceased actor, um, but, uh, you know, the, 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 the apparent popularity according to polling of Aaron O'Toole is rising and the party more broadly, you know, is now apparently, you know, polling more, uh, a higher uh, popular vote than the liberals, um, which is, you know, not something that was forecast in my understanding to happen. Didn't look like it would be that way. And, you know, this strategic uh, pivot, uh, you know, I, I guess it's hard to evaluate, you know, whether whether that's what's behind things, but but it, but it may to some degree be, you know, somewhat effective. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to forget that, in fact, the conservatives got a slightly higher share of the popular vote in 2019 than the liberals did mm -hmm. because of the way their voters are distributed 
they, you know, we ended up with a liberal minority government. But I think, uh, yeah, this is this is important to pay attention to for sure. I'll just say very briefly about the Bloc Québécois that uh, the Bloc Québécois has really aligned itself in a way that's quite consistent with the the Legault uh, provincial government the, of the CAC, um, the more right wing party that's the provincial government in, in Quebec. And so they uh, are, and that is a, a party that is, uh, you know, they're not, they're not even positioning themselves uh, in terms of Quebec independence. They don't say anything about Quebec independence in their platform. Uh, so they're kind of more aligned with the, at the moment, with the way the CAC is presenting itself, which is what in Quebec sometimes people call it uh, autonomy. In other words, just trying to get more rights for Quebec within the federal state and further backing away from uh, the project of Quebec independence, even on the neoliberal basis that the Parti Québécois has previously been uh, advancing. So that's worth uh, mentioning in, in terms of how they're positioning themselves. Uh, yeah, and I think there's some interesting things to note happening with the NDP. Um, it's worth considering that um, the platform is possibly a little bit further left than it has been in years uh, when we look at uh, calls to tax the rich, uh, nationalize long-term care, specifically naming Rivera. And then as well, we could also consider, I guess, uh, that maybe there's some look to appeal to liberal voters as a better alternative, uh, the slogan of the NDP, ready for better. Um, so looking to liberal voters who may align a little bit more with uh, left-leaning ideals, um, but then acknowledging that the focus is still, of course, um, on reform through existing electoral channels. It does seem true to me that the, that the platform it, it could be, you know, fairly uh, described as, as further to the left, you know, keeping in mind the extremely constrained uh, framework that, that all the parties, including the NDP, operate in. Um, but, you know, they're talking about half a million uh uh, affordable house units of affordable housing and I mean I don't know if how much of that is you know would be earmarked as explicitly public housing there's also talk of of you know um, co-op funding and, and in cooperative housing um, and uh, yeah I mean I think that the, the the slightly more um, progressive taxation that they're calling for um, I think you know uh, within the ND or in discussion of the NDP, there, there, there's sometimes, you know, reference to the fact that historically the NDP has been very successful in in helping to move forward reforms like Medicare uh, when not in government uh, federally. Um, but you know, I think it, it's it, people should take a good look at you know what what has the NDP moved in terms of, of, of policy as, you know, with the current minority government situation and, you know, the performance in that regard has not been great with the NDP, you know, um, championing this massive employer wage subsidy uh, at a historic, you know, giveaway to, to employers in the capitalist class and the NDP, you know, finding itself cheerleading it and then, you know, having some second thoughts afterwards. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I don't know how, how well the NDP can sort of position itself as this uh, this power, you know, broker that can that can really push ahead dramatic changes. But that is certainly a, you know a narrative that that gets told by NDP partisans. So. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if they were, you know, going to get more support uh, to some extent through some of these policies, particularly from people who you know fed up with the liberals through the pandemic. But um, 
it's not a dramatic break from their uh, their policies of the of the past. Nothing, you know, it's kind of boldly anti neoliberal in the way that, uh, say, uh, Bernie Sanders or, or Jeremy Corbyn have laid out. No, not I'm not going to be uncritical of those people, uh, but uh, just to put it all in perspective, I think we should remember that. And I guess the NDP also has, um, you know, been gaining. Uh, in the polling this election. And I think, you know, another thing that always has to be highlighted um, is uh, the, the, the amount of uh, racism uh, that pro- fuels uh, some attitudes towards Jagmeet Singh. Um, and, uh, you know, those those attitudes are prevalent, you know, in, 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 in the, you know, the ruling class and the working class. Um, and, and that is, you know, something that, that he, uh, you know, has to work against as party leader. Um, but, you know, that said, um, this is someone who appointed or, or, you know, picked as staff people from the provinces, including Manitoba, who are not, you know, sort of left-wing insiders. They're very much status quo, um, sort of neoliberal uh, management sort of party hacks uh, that, that he's sort of surrounded himself with. Um, so, uh, you know, there's there's uh, lots to... Um, Lots to give pause, I you know one would think uh, to, to to people about you know how progressive and how serious you know are the NDP uh, as ostensibly a social democratic party, and then you know in 2021 um, with with all the, the climate calamities and catastrophes everywhere, you know uh, he continues to flip flop on pipeline conversations, saying if if he were to if they were to form government, he wouldn't necessarily halt the Trans Mountain pipeline, and and, and that's something that he's sort of been uh, seeming to waffle and and be inconsistent on throughout his tenure uh, in that position. And in 2021, to not have you know uh, any of the mainstream uh, sort of credible electoral parties uh, taking a firm stance against no pipelines um and you know it, i guess it shows you know how constrained or or, or how uh compromised you know these organizations or, or the ndp specifically is um because you know uh, the, the, the everybody is feeling you know the the climate emergency this summer uh and and the ndp has their leader sort of hemming and hawing about pipeline or no pipeline yeah and maybe the flip side of that is it tells us about just how significant fossil capital is to Canadian capitalism. Uh, And since it's not simply a question of the big companies that are invested in the, you know, uh, in the tar sands, but also so many other companies that are invested and banks and so on that are integrated into and invested in them, that uh, a really all out attack on fossil capital uh, has implications for other sections of the capitalist class as well. And that's where they all, you know, tread very, gently uh, where the conservatives of course don't even tread gently they're fully aligned with fossil capital uh, and the the liberals while wanting to distance themselves in some ways uh, end up uh, you know supporting policies like carbon taxes which are exactly what the big extractive companies want because it doesn't keep the uh, the oil in the soil okay well this is this is the analysis we've been putting together collectively uh, where does that point us so yeah, I mean, what's a what's a what's a radical to do? What's a socialist to do? Um, and you know, I, I guess for me, I sort of have more like framing questions than sort of prescriptive lines, you know. Um, and you know, I'd be open to you know being uh, sort of pushed about you know maybe I need to have a firmer line on how to orient to to to, to electoral politics. One sort of position, I, I suppose, which which I see is somewhat sort of common sense 
on the socialist left is that throughout an election, what socialists should do is push on key sort of policy and social issues uh, and do so in a way that isolates the conservatives, exposes the liberals for what they are and pushes the NDP further to the left. And, and that I'm actually looking at a, a piece uh, published in Spring Magazine that, that, that used that kind of framework, which I think is, you know, somewhat uh, or certainly should be familiar to, to socialists, um, you know, isolate the conservatives, expose the liberals, push the NDP for the left. So I, I'm curious about what David and, you know, Danielle uh, think about that kind of approach. Um, and I guess, you know, another sort of framing question is, uh, you know, to what degree is is, is uh, critical uh, engagement with, with, with the major electoral parties, you know, the NDP, um, to what extent should socialists be involved in that? To what extent, you know, do socialists have a shared view or, or you know, is there, you know, fairly contrasting views on, you know, how and when to engage with the NDP? If there's somebody, if there's a, you know, a, uh, uh, someone running who's, you know, a Matthew Green, a Leah Gazin, maybe a Nikki Ashton, you know, these are considered the, the, the more progressive leftist uh, folks, um, you know, should socialists, you know, be involved in their campaigns, but not other campaigns? Those are the sort of framing questions, you know, which I which I do have some thoughts on. Um, but uh, I'd be curious what David and Danielle have to think. Well, I can say a few things. I think the first thing is that it's really important to think about this because um, the socialist left in this society is very small and marginal and fragmented. And there's always the pressure to become very kind of inwardly looking and not really oriented to mass politics because we are not, you know, we're operating on the margins most of the time. And so there's the risk that we don't think a lot about the big picture uh, and we're people who don't share our assumptions, you know, in our, who aren't in our, in our social bubbles and so on, where, where they're at. So it is, it is really important to, to think about this um, and, and these kinds of, of questions. But at the same time, we have to recognize the weakness of our forces and the position from which we're doing it and have humility about that. So what, what concerns me about the formulation that you quoted, Robin, from the article in Spring is that it kind of assumes, I think, that we have the the social forces that where we could actually influence the NDP and pull it to the left. Um, and I don't think that the radical left in this country is able to, at the moment, exercise that, uh, you know, for example, back in 2019, when there was a surging climate justice movement uh, heading towards the, the climate strike of September 2019, uh, that was a movement that was strong enough to have an impact. Uh, but at the moment, I don't think that there's any social movement and certainly the, the organized political forces of the radical left are far too weak to uh, to have an influence. So I just think that the, if we don't recognize that, there's the risk that we end up just providing left cover for the NDP um, because we, we think we can influence them when we actually don't, and then we just end up tailing them. Um, and I'm not accusing the author of that article of doing that, but I'm just saying that if we don't recognize uh, where we're positioned, that there's a, a risk there. So I think that we should, through unions and social movement organizations try to use the election period to build those movements, to strengthen the organizing. I think that's the key question, um, rather than be used by the parties, right? So to figure out tactically where we're located, how we can use the election campaign to strengthen the work that we were doing before and hopefully that we'll be doing after. And then there's the, the question of when it comes to actually, you know, how to vote, um, you know, we shouldn't spend enormous amounts of time arguing about this because 
frankly, we don't have a mass audience, you know. Um, I still think the argument to vote NDP and hold your nose, uh, recognizing that it's a pro-capitalist workers' party still, even if it's become more and more distanced from unions which themselves are decaying, I think that still holds. I don't think they're a capitalist party simply like the others, um, because I, if they were, then I, there would be a principled basis for saying don't vote for them. Just like you say, never vote for the Liberal Party or the Conservative Party under any circumstances. And then we can also then use the election as an opportunity to do things like this podcast to try to engage people who are, you know, thinking about politics uh, in a different way to prevent, uh, to offer a different kind of analysis. Those are some thoughts. Yeah, I would agree with you there, David, to take this opportunity to focus on organizing um, and looking to kind of build uh, relationships and opportunities for education with those who I guess would identify as insiders um, as well as outsiders. Um, and yeah, trying to build that power so that we can try to bring the NDP maybe a little bit further left. Um, but also um, in thinking about the conservative campaign and that appeal to workers, um, trying to kind of build relationships and kind of understand why people might find that uh, shift appealing and um, yeah, counter that with some uh, more like critical analysis. And uh, I guess, uh, you know, another thing that I've seen in terms of how should socialists or radicals orient to, to elections and electoral politics is uh, like the historic, you know, relationship of unions with the NDP, um, you know, the union leadership and, and, and the, you know, other people who run unions, which often include, you know, a lot of staff positions um, are, are, you know, depending on the union, you know, there, there is a lot of, um, you know, overlap between folks who uh, work for unions and folks who work for the NDP, folks who work for unions and folks who run for the NDP. Um, and, you know, to maybe just say a few things about the relationship between the NDP and the labor movement, um, you know, in, in, in a lot of, or at least in some unions, and, and especially, you know, the public sector unions that, that are, that are, you know, more outspoken on political things, um, you know, education, Education for members, political education follows a sort of ladder of engagement within these unions, which leads to being the best, you know, at supporting the NDP you can be in campaigning for them. And that's sort of the, you know, the end point of successful political education in, 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 in you know, certainly uh, several public sector unions, it's, it's, it sort of operates that way. Um, and, you know, the, the, the way this stuff shakes out in practice can, can be, you know, pretty dispiriting. Um, so, you know, I know with 16 years of, of the NDP in government in, in Manitoba, and, and certainly David could talk about this in, in a lot of detail, um, you know, the, 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 the union and labor movement um, really, you know, got very, very little from 16 years of NDP, you know, card check, making it less difficult to unionize any number of things, you know, and I've, you know, heard, um, you know, people within unions, uh, maybe the more critical voices, talk about how uh, for those 16 years, there were there were unions that effectively, you know, didn't ask, didn't put any demands on that government. Uh, and so the, the cozy relationship, the overlap between the NDP and 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 the labor movement and, and the CLC, you know, it can be very uh, stultifying uh, and, and very immobilizing of the labor movement as, as everybody just sits on their hands when they're quote unquote, you know, uh, 
guys, uh, people are, are, are in government. And, um, you know, it, it's been interesting to see to what degree there's been pushback against um, the BC NDP, you know, who who were not, you know, prepared to implement sick days during uh, during COVID, uh, paid sick days for workers. Um, so, you know, I think um, it's very difficult to sort of critically support the NDP without adding the legitimacy and credibility to what is a capitalist party, not a capitalist party like all others, like David says. Um, but it's a very, I think, tricky thing to be, to, to, to sort of, it's, it's a tricky dance, I think, for, for some people. And, you know, if, if the, the left, the radical left, the socialist left had more organizational heft and capacity, um, you know, then there would maybe be more possibilities of, of what to do about these things. Um, but I think another difficulty is that, you know, people who see the shortcomings and limitations of even the ostensibly left-wing parties like the NDP, um, you know, they if you cast around and, and look for what to tap into, um, you know, if you're young, you know, it's, it's often, you know, activism and grassroots activism in cities is often, you know, skews towards younger people, uh, but it depends on the group. It can also be very much older people. Um, but to find a structure in an organization that people can plug into that sort of, um, uh, you know, not inaccessible, that, that's, that, that's welcoming, you know, I don't think the left has, has, you know, an abundance of options for people to, to try and build power outside. And, you know, certainly I believe people should get involved in their union and try to, you know, improve the politics of their, of, of their unions uh, as best they can. But it is often, frankly, a very thankless task. And, and it's okay to be honest about that. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we've talked in other episodes of this podcast about uh, ideas for trying to, to use your words, Robin, to strengthen, you know, increase the heft of the, the radical left and Solidarity Winnipeg, well, you know, it was a, a very small project trying to lay the basis for an eco-socialist political organization. Uh, and there are other important initiatives in the city where, you know, I think people's relationship to the NDP is different in this province for the reasons you mentioned that we had the NDP in office for 16 years, which uh, between 99 and, and uh 2016. So it really does uh, mean that people's understanding of them uh, is shaped in a way that's different than in a province where they haven't been in, in office in the, in the same way, for sure. There is also, I think, a sort of, uh, I don't know if common sense is the right word, because we're not talking about a huge number of people, but on the radical left, you know, or, or, or just the left, there's a notion that, you know, you sort of, the left gets the version of the NDP that it deserves in that if the the independent you know radical left if labor movements are militant that you know should necessarily you know rearticulate the NDP to uh, the left and so if you know all these movements that radicals love to, to champion and, and hope that we're building you know if they were stronger um, then the NDP would look better um, so you know you, you, you do hear that and um, you know I, I suppose you know there, there, there's there's a there's some truth to it I don't know if either of you have thoughts on that. Well, one quick thought is that it there's a difference between building movements that are strong enough to influence the NDP and trying to influence the NDP as the goal. And I think that the, the people sometimes make a mistake about that. I think we should try to build the strongest possible movements. And if that changes the NDP so much, the better. And then we think about how to relate to them. But that's different from saying that the, the goal of this is to, you know, change the NDP and make it the instrument, the political instrument that we need. Maybe before we wrap up, we should just go back to something that you mentioned earlier, Robin, which is about the more left-wing NDP candidates. You, know, you mentioned some of them. 
Because um, of course there is a difference between, you know, someone like Leah Gazan or Matthew Green, Nikki Ashton, just to mention the three that you mentioned, uh, and the people who are simply uh, uncritical cheerleaders for the party establishment. But at the same time, those people, uh, whatever their personal opinions are, they're really constrained by the, the discipline of the party caucus. You know, and I think sometimes we, um, people too quickly focus on, on the individuals and not on um, what they're actually able to accomplish. Because I think we should evaluate them on the basis of what they, what they actually do. Right? Judge people by their actions and not by whatever their personal beliefs might be at the end of the day. Yeah, I think, you know, it is a question for me how much any of these, uh, you know, more progressive, uh, uh, arguably more principled figures, um, you know, can influence the party, can 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 push the envelope. Um, you know, certainly there's more leeway, leeway to speak on like, you know, to tweet under Jagmeet Singh than there was under Mulcair, um, uh, you know, uh, but, uh, you know, what influence, uh, you know, is, is there a basis for a sort of block of, of more, you know, left wing, uh, you know, I don't, uh, influence in the party. Uh, I, I was listening to uh, the Alberta Advantage podcast, and they had Abby Lewis on, who, who, who's now running for the, you know, in a federal seat on the West Coast. And, uh, you know, he was talking about how, how Canada could use a squad uh, that, you know, like uh, AOC and, and, and folks in the States, sort of more outspoken, I guess, younger, fresher kind of, you know, uh, but, you know, there, there's sort of a, a question there of, of, um, of discourse and and you know kind of uh, vibe and okay well what, what's actually moving forward you know what's accomplished is this is this shifting things um, and you know I, I I guess I don't see much evidence of it but maybe I'm not looking closely enough. No, I, I think you're seeing what there is to see, and the fact is that we have an extremely disciplined party caucus system in in Canada, so that. In Britain, you could have Jeremy Corbyn as a Labour Party MP for years voting against the Labour Party leadership in the House of Commons um, on a principled basis uh, and doing things that would get you thrown out of the NDP caucus, and denied the right to run again on the, under the NDP banner in, you know, here. Uh, and again, in the States, um, there's more independence for you know, members of Congress uh, in a certain sense than, than there is for MPs to act independently of their uh, party establishments, party leaderships uh, because of the, the way that the caucus system works. So, you know, you could, of course you could bring in a really good, uh, for example, a radical green new deal bill uh, to, you know, use it as a tool to provoke debate discussion and help the climate justice movement, but you might get ejected from your party caucus for doing that as an NDP MP, um, because if you're putting forward something that goes much further than what the NDP's official policies are on, on those questions. So again, I think it's important to not just think about you know, personalities and whether people are good people or bad people, but to look at the institutional uh, setup that they're, that they're stuck in. And you know, then we can assess tactics on that basis. And that institution that people are stuck in, you know, applies to the sort of uh, rank and file, you know, NDP membership and constituencies. I mean, their conventions 
you know, because of, I guess, the pressure of, of groups like Courage have tried to, you know, put, put a, you know, uh, more of a spotlight on, you know, how the resolutions and committees process works at NDP conventions and why things are arbitrarily sort of prioritized or deprioritized or not brought into the floor. Uh, and then after it's all said and done, they're all just considered value statements and, and the party doesn't have to implement any of them. So, you know, one of the things that, you know, I have always been struck by with the NDP is how internally undemocratic it is. And yet, it's, it's supposed to be an organization, according to its partisans, that is going to, you know, be a progressive democratic governing body. And as an organization and institution itself, um, you know, it's incredibly undemocratic and, you know, unelected staffers have huge sway in how things happen. Uh, and, and so to imagine, you know, what would it be like to, for those who imagine the NDP can be reformed and fundamentally changed, um, you know, what would that look like? It, it would, it, you know, would have to be a sort of root and branch restructuring, um, at least it seems to me. Good topic for a future episode. <laughs> Can the NDP be changed? I think that maybe we should wrap it up there and uh, encourage people who want to find out more about Solidarity Winnipeg if you haven't uh, heard of us before to check us out at solidaritywinnipeg.ca where you can also sign up for our occasional email newsletter you can find us as well on facebook twitter and instagram 